The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Christian, Christian Owens, founder and CEO at Paddle, to this week's show. Now, quick introduction. Paddle is the UK's fastest growing software startup. They've raised $25 million in VC funding, and they've tripled their revenue every year for six years, and tripled their headcount during the past nine months. So, uh, Christian, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start with a, a bit of a chat about your initial experiences of business. At the tender age of 16, you made £100,000 in just three months and, and quit school. So tell us more about that. I think kind of growing up, I was one of these kids who hated school for one reason or another, probably just because I was distracted by other things and kind of came home every day kind of asking my parents if I could sort of drop out of school when I was 16, to which their reply was always kind of a stern no. And I think kind of I wore them down over the period of kind of maybe six or 12 months. And eventually they kind of broke down and said, okay, if you can, and they kind of discovered the internet at this point. And they were like, okay, with the stuff that you're doing online and kind of making websites for people and building software, if you can prove to us that you can make, I think it was a hundred thousand pounds a year or, or something sort of reasonably ridiculous for a, for a 15-year-old. If you can prove to us that you can do that, then we'll let you give up school at 16 and kind of pursue this, kind of knowing that you probably won't sponge off of us for the rest of your life if you can hit that milestone. And I think kind of it was one of those things where it was a good motivational tool for me to kind of take it seriously. And for them, I don't think they thought that I would hit it. But started kind of it was motivation enough to start my first software company and started that and it was sort of a marketplace for kind of discovering and, and buying other people's software and that did reasonably well and kind of we did i think like 250 or 300,000 in sales in the first like two weeks fair enough to say that i won the bet and this was sort of four or five months before i was due to finish school and kind of they let me do that and then i continued sort of growing that business for the next 12 or 18 months or so to a two three million family a business and then you exited from that and started Paddle or you pivoted from one business to the other? I think I got a little bit. When I initially started, I was building software and I started building tooling for like freelancers and people who were doing client work because that's how I started. I taught myself to build websites and was building websites for people in kind of the town that I grew up in because I think quite naively I didn't want to pay for like QuickBooks or something. And I was like, I can build this. So I built some invoicing software and started selling it to people. But then the business that actually started growing was this kind of marketplace for sort of like discovering and, and buying other people's software. And I think after about kind of 12, 18 months or so of growing that business, I think I just got sort of a little bit sick of kind of helping all of these other companies who were growing, who were building incredible products, selling those products and not actually creating anything of my own. So hired somebody to run that business uh, and it still runs today. But kind of through that process of scaling this business to sort of two or three million pounds in short space of time, selling the customers in kind of every country, in every currency, dealing with like taxes and actually having to run a business, realized how much of kind of a pain this was and how much it distracted from actually 
trying to build a product and get customers and, and all of these things. And sort of that was the motivation kind of behind starting Paddle, especially of talking to some of these software companies that I was working with. Sort of everybody had the same sort of frustrations around this process of they're selling into a hundred different countries and it's not a particularly nice process in any of them. And kind of, I just thought, why isn't there a sort of single kind of platform and set of tools that effectively solves this problem, given that all of these software companies are kind of building the same thing over and over and over again to try and solve this problem themselves. You've scaled Paddle from 50 to 150 people in the last nine months. What were the biggest challenges of that rapid scale up? There are the logistical challenges of it uh, in that I think that we've outgrown offices twice in a year and kind of are about to kind of move into a new space again in the next month or so. So this is like simply the logistical challenges of actually expanding that many people. But I think it's kind of the natural thing that happens when a a software company or any company for that matter goes through sort of those, I guess, like step changes as a company. I think it happens when you go from being like a couple of people, maybe like founders to hiring your first sort of three or four people. There's a big change that happens. And then when you go from being sort of less than 10 people to kind of 25 to 50 and then 50 to beyond is there are all of these changes that happen as an organization in terms of like, how do you communicate with each other? How do you scale kind of access to information? How do you make sure kind of everybody's aligned on kind of what they're working on and people aren't duplicating work of each other, especially as you go through these changes of sort of typical startup where everybody's probably doing more than one job to kind of when you're our size and have 150-ish people, people start to get reasonably specialized deliberately of you want to hire the best possible people to do a specific functional role. And kind of navigating that transition can be tricky, especially as sort of it's not like that work just wasn't being done before. It was probably just being done collaboratively by sort of three or four different people who kind of took on that responsibility. So I think navigating that kind of like organizational design who reports to who who does what sort of where does the expertise exist in the organization to get something done i think that's probably been the largest like portion of the work like after actually sort of just recruiting that many people and also has been the one i think that took me certainly by surprise the most in terms of how important it was that we got it right did you learn by your mistakes in a way or did you have some advisors, some mentors guiding you on how to do this in an effective, structured way? We definitely had a, sort of some people who were giving us advice from other people who are running companies that I knew to people who had done it before to our investors and kind of people that we just knew in the industry who sort of we kind of trusted. But I think as with most of these things, it's actually quite difficult. Sort of there is only kind of there's quite a few, but it's actually quite difficult to find the people within an organization who is like tripled in headcount from sort of 50 to 150 people in eight or nine months and actually can give you a candid look into like, here's all the stuff that's going to go wrong in that process. And here are the things you should optimize up front. And equally, here are the things that you should sort of actually just react to when they break because they're going to break in different ways in different organizations and you're going to have sort of you're going to be at different stages of sort of how much you've developed things like communication internally i think very much sort of a process of i think like guided trial and error we had some sort of low hanging fruit that we were advised of sort of these things are going to become challenging but for the most part it's been like reacting to sort of 
situations that occur and then also kind of trying to be as transparent as we can internally about the whole process and open to feedback and kind of taking thoughts and ideas and suggestions and frustrations from people who are in the organization and sort of kind of fixing them in real time as they come up. Staying with this topic of scaling rapidly, a lot of startups and scale-ups struggle to position themselves in the war for talent ahead of top brands like uh, Google and Facebook and Amazon. So how have you positioned Paddle as the employer of choice? I kind of think about this in a couple of ways. One is inherently the problem that you're solving, if you're really passionate about it, and actually sort of striving to, I guess, make a change in like whatever area of business or the world that kind of others might find exciting. I think just being both inwardly and outwardly kind of passionate about it as a topic, you will naturally attract other people who are kind of passionate about that topic. And for a lot of people kind of in in the general sense of things, if you describe our business about billing and taxes and sort of how we help with all of these sort of more boring operational aspects of running a software company and sort of provide a platform and tooling to deal with that. For a lot of people, that's going to be kind of incredibly unexciting, but then (laughs) equally for a different kind of cohort of people, it's going to be incredibly exciting and the thing that they're really interested in. So I think that's one is, is sort of actually just being really honest. If we try to portray this as the most exciting consumer startup in the world and then tried to attract those people maybe we would succeed in pulling the wool over people's eyes in the short term to attract the talent but then we're not going to retain the talent so i think being inwardly and outwardly passionate about the problem that you're trying to solve is is one really important thing and then i think the other one is just build a really nice place to work and i say that knowing that a lot of companies, especially in tech, try to achieve that through quite superficial things of free lunches and massages and sort of whatnot. And sure, that stuff does help. And, and kind of if you have the resources to do so, do so. But I think it's much more the thing that attracts people much more, certainly that we've found, is putting real emphasis on things like individual progression and learning and making budgets available for people to sort of develop as both professionally but also personally. And I think that if you were to come in and and talk to any of the people here, I think probably within the first sort of two or three reasons that they say that they like working here is to do with the emphasis that we put on individual learning development and the resources that we kind of allocate for people to spend on that. Instead of having a pool table or a football table in the foyer, you're spending money on each individual's training and development. Yeah. And also, if you've been in a company that has a pool table in the lobby, you'll know how annoying that is in terms of like how loud it is. And sort of, it's great to have that stuff. And like, we do some of the like sort of superficial things that people like as well. Like, we have massages, I think, once a month, and we do like weekly yoga classes and sort of we do the catered lunches and, and all of that stuff. And they'll be the things that people, talk about as like yeah that's cool and, and nice to have but i think if you actually get into the sort of that's not the reason that people are sticking around especially with the abundance of companies that you could go to and get a free lunch or a yoga class or whatever it might be but the reason that people do is because we actually do care about them as people and invest in them developing both both personally and professionally and when we last chatted you told me that the biggest challenge 
of being a software CEO is that the day-to-day is pretty brutal and that you work for 150 people rather than having 150 people work for you. So tell us more about the day-to-day challenge of having 150 bosses. The way that I see my role is, yes, there are traditional CEO-like duties that I have of I have to make sure that we're kind of capitalized and we don't run out of money. And we have to, I have to make sure that sort of we have collaboratively with sort of my exec team, make sure that we have direction and we know what we're focusing on and immediate issues and things like product and go to market are addressed. But equally, I see myself as kind of, in many cases, organizational kind of lubricant, if you like, of sort of, I'm the best placed person in a lot of situations to help unblock an issue be that because i have the benefit of six years of context of thinking about and trying to solve the problem that we're solving every single day be it because between myself and and harrison my co-founder sort of basically every job that anybody has here we've done at some point probably badly but we've done it at some point and also in a lot of cases as much as you kind of push collaboration and input from people and give feedback and and kind of let people work autonomously. Sometimes it's helpful to have sort of somebody or a group of people that everybody can kind of sense check ideas against, be it from a, have we actually tried that before? And sort of what did we learn from it last time? So I kind of see myself as just most of my time, it's just making myself available to solve issues. And at the end of the day, anything that goes wrong is ultimately my fault, be it from somebody internally being unhappy for whatever reason to a customer being irritated with us to sort of something kind of on the technical side breaking or being late. Ultimately, however way you reconcile it, at the end of the day, it's my fault and it's my problem to fix in one way or another. So I think kind of taking that very literally and just sort of not being afraid to roll the sleeves up and just get on with stuff in order to either free up work streams internally or kind of grease the wheels on a project or like whatever it might be. I think making myself available to do that is probably one of the most productive uses of my time. No wonder with 150 bosses, you rolled out the monthly massages and the yoga. Exactly. I haven't actually had a massage or done a yoga class. So maybe I should sort of practice what I preach and do it. But when we actually think about what we come here and we ask people to do is we ask people to come here every day and solve a really difficult problem that we don't believe anybody has solved correctly to date, which is part of the reason why we think that we can grow a business and and be competitive. So we're asking people to do really hard things and also dedicate a significant chunk of their life to working here and doing these things. And I think the minor expense that is sort of health and well-being and things like that, and we do, we do things like we have like mental health coach who comes in once a week and kind of does, does sessions with people like one-on-one. All of these things for the minor expense when you consider it in comparison to something like payroll that might make people N percent more productive or happy or sort of fulfilled, then sort of why wouldn't we do those things? Idea of a mental health coach intrigues me. I've seen that in Billions, the the TV series (laughs) Billions. Did you get the idea from Billions or from the real world? I am a fan of that TV show. I think (laughs) it's a great show. Attributing some of the, I think attributing some of the inspiration to that would be cool. But I think that sort of the output of the mental health coach is much more to do with, well, here at least, is much more to do with 
the individual's sort of well-being rather than the organization's well-being <laughs> as it is in that show. But I think it was kind of one of the things that we ask people to do quite stressful things. When we ask people to work and people do work long hours and kind of they have deadlines. And when kind of you're trying to continue growing something like revenue 3x a year from a significantly higher base than it once was, it's relatively trivial to grow 200 grand a year sort of in revenue 3x it's sort of significantly less trivial to grow sort of 10 or 20 million a year by 3x. So asking people to do those things is significantly stressful enough that I think providing people with a kind of safe outlet to sort of release and, and actually voice issues, and it's all private, none of it comes back to us, and, and sort of we do it all completely independently of the organization, is sort of just a helpful outlet for people to keep them mentally healthy while they work here. Great idea. Now, how is your approach to fundraising, for example, the types of investors that you prefer to engage with? How has that approach evolved over time? We've raised $25 million to date, which is still quite staggering when I actually say it out loud. And initially kind of started with when first started the business, didn't need the money. Uh, like we raised the first round that we raised was 150K and didn't necessarily need the money to start the business. But wanted to raise money from somebody who'd actually run a business before. Um, I was 17 at the time, had never really hired anyone and had ambitions to grow a sort of a really large organization and, and solve a big problem. So the first fundraising that we did was very much out of, I want to raise it from an individual who's run a company at some kind of scale and met a guy called Mark and who'd done just that and sort of ended up raising the money from him in a couple of days. And I think it was sort of one of those sort of ask for advice, get money type situations. And sort of had never, we didn't actually go out to try and raise a round. And then the first time that we actually did go out and try and raise a round, which was our Series A, where we raised 3.2 million, was a reasonably atypical experience in that we ended up raising it from somebody that we'd known for a while who happened to kind of move between funds and sort of brought us into the, the fund that he moved to. But that was very much the first time that we'd actually gone out and tried to run a process. And we met with maybe 30 or 40 different funds. That's one of the things that's sort of most significantly changed throughout the process of raising capital over the years is, and I think it's a difficult mindset to shift in a lot of founders and entrepreneurs is, is sort of the first fundraising, real fundraising experience that we had was one of going out and kind of pounding the pavement and sort of speaking to 30 or 40 different people. And going reasonably deep in those conversations with those 30 or 40 different people over, I think, a two or three month period of time. You're spending pretty much all of your time talking to people and raising money and, and sort of telling the same story and kind of vision and everything over and over. I was fortunate to realize quite quickly that speaking to sort of like fellow founders often isn't the case. As we've progressed since then and, and gone on to raise 20 something million more across a couple of rounds. The thing that, that I realized was two things, two dynamics change in that situation. One, the stakes are higher in terms of the amount of money and the amount of risk that you're asking an investor to take is, is multiplied so that you have to be mindful of that. But equally, sort of the, the certainty of execution and the expectation from them is also higher. When you think like one of those things is something that goes for you in a process and one of the things is something that goes against you in the process in terms of with the increased expectation you only get that from historical execution and if you've been fortunate enough to execute well 
your prop the sort of the tables of kind of leverage that you have in a fundraising situation probably flip from being the company that has to go and meet 40 or 50 different people and tell the story over and over again with sort of limited track record to probably trying to be more strategic about who you talk to and who can add value in terms of the next milestone that you want to hit post fundraising. So for our series B, I think we spoke to three or four different funds, only maybe two of them kind of we actually really went deep with before deciding on who we would go with. And it was a process of like actually cultivating and talking to those, cultivating those relationships and talking to those funds probably immediately after we raised the round prior and having those conversations for like a year with three or four funds that we thought would be valuable to us in terms of what we wanted to do next. So that when the time came to actually go out and, and raise the money, it wasn't effectively already raised. But we'd done a lot of the work in terms of dating and getting to know each other throughout that process because sort of this is going to be a relationship that we're going to have for seven, 10 plus years. So actually spending the time over a year of going to coffees and lunches and catching up to build a relationship with somebody who you're then going to eventually ask to give you potentially tens of millions of dollars, I think is a much more prudent way of going about the process than being completely it's important to have like heads down execution time in the interim between rounds, but rather than complete sort of radio silence, and then you only pop up for kind of two month periods of time when you actually want to go and raise money, I think it's counterproductive to actually being able to one, get the best possible people who can add the most value during that aren't just capital, but also I think kind of takes the pressure off in that when we raised our series B and we were talking to kind of two or three funds who we'd been in like light touch conversation with for a year, instead of that process taking what we thought would take two or three months again, it took two or three weeks. Good smart money advice there. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty impressive fundraising timetable when, when you actually went out there with the, the formal raise. 2019 and beyond, what are your aspirations for the next um, couple of years? I think it's mostly around how do we continue both the trajectory that we're on in terms of we've been fortunate enough to kind of execute well and grow pretty well over the last several years. So I think continuing that just from a pure execution numbers perspective, we've been reasonably fortunate in kind of, it didn't feel fortunate at the time, but we've been reasonably fortunate historically to be kind of building a very, very different way of solving this back office billing taxes issue for these software companies, which historically has meant kind of it's been quite difficult because a lot of our sales process or marketing or go to market has been very educationally driven. Now that we're getting to a more significant level of sort of scale and number of customers and things like that, that's becoming still a challenge, but less of a challenge as sort of we have this reference ability. But I think that also breeds increased competition, which I'm actually quite excited about. I like competition generally. I think it's sort of like reasonably motivating. Sort of, I think that's going to be one of the things that's sort of different. I think it's going to be less of an educational kind of process as we get more reputation and more brand, but sort of slightly more of a competitive process, which I'm excited about. But it's mostly about like, how do we continue this sort of the same level of agility that we have sort of from a product side of things and the same level of execution that we've had from a sales and marketing side of things into the future where 
the numbers are bigger, the, the stakes are higher, and, and kind of all of these things hopefully compound to make kind of ultimately a much sort of bigger, sort of stronger, more resilient business 24, 36 months from now. Your parents, they inadvertently prompted your adventure into the world of being a tech entrepreneur. Are they still carefully watching what goes on? Are they showing lots of interest? Are they even involved in the business in some way? Or um, are they just <laughs> keeping a distance but happy that you're being successful? I think early on, they've always been sort of incredibly supportive and partially keep a watchful eye, especially like my dad. My mom actually works here. She's in our people team and sort of has been a member of the team basically since day one. I don't actually see her that often now in the office because there's so many people and we're all in different ends of the building and, and kind of meeting rooms and, and things like that. But no, it's still incredibly supportive and sort of hopefully will continue to be long into the future. Well, those free massages are obviously doing the trick even with your parents. Christian, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for sharing so many insights that I'm sure will inspire and guide many other uh, young up-and-coming entrepreneurs. Thank you for having me. It's been great. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.